Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to the third episode of Remarvel here at the Chris and Reggie channel. Uh, you can find this program, uh, well, I guess we could say most Fridays. Uh, so far, we've uh, done three in a row, so that's a pretty good thing. Uh, I, I will just play it by ear, though. I don't want to really set a you know hard and fast rule for this program or set any sort of expectation, but... Uh, so far, so good. Uh, as a matter of fact, though, we almost missed this week. Uh, it's been a pretty strange week here at the uh, homestead and a uh, pretty weird day. Uh, as I sit here recording this, I'm about three hours away from hopping on a plane to head back to uh, New York City for uh, a business trip for the wife. Um, I'm, you know, the tag along, so that's a, which is a fine role for me. <laughs> it's a, it's kind of the way I like it. Um, but it's, it's just going to be a weird time. I'm not a, I'm not a tremendously, uh, comfortable traveler. I, I'm not a fan of travel. Uh, not really scared of flying or anything, just, uh, I just don't like being away from home. I, I kind of thought growing up that it would be the opposite, you know, like travel was just something you did when you were an adult. And I know folks that just, you know, love it. They, you know, they live to travel and, uh, I envy them that because I live to, you know, sit in my house and... <laughs> And just, uh, just kind of exist. I, uh, not a big fan of being, uh, you know, in a bed that isn't my own with my head on a pillow that isn't my own. It's, uh, I don't know, it's agoraphobia, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. It's, uh, it just is what it is. Uh, it's weird. Uh, I, I've, before we go, I actually got to go and grab like a jacket. I have to buy a jacket. I haven't bought a jacket in many, many years, uh. Living in Phoenix, it's like, you know, we get like three days of fall and maybe like twenty minutes of winter. So it's, it's easy to it's easy to sidestep the colder weather here. And uh, I, I, if if it ever comes down to it, I would just usually default to uh, the flannel shirt that I you know I've had for like forever. Because um, you know it it's a multitasker. You get to wear it when it's cold, and uh, when it's not cold, you get to tie it around your waist like a real kick in fashion accessory. You know, it's a uh, you can be a real savage <laughs> and and look like you never grew up. But uh, since this is a business uh, meeting for the wife or a business trip for the wife, and I'm going to be meeting a lot of her associates, I figure it's probably in my best interest to get an actual jacket instead of having my wife sheepishly introduce everyone to her 40-year-old husband, Chris Cobain. You know, I think that's uh, probably the best for everybody. So yeah, we're traveling, and uh, by the time you're hearing this episode, uh, uh, good God willing, I'm sitting in a hotel room bored out of my gourd, or I'm having my first decent bagel in 20 years. So either way, <laughs> let's hope for the best. But uh, I, I did want to do this episode because... Uh, I don't know, I'm just having a lot of fun doing this program and, and uh, rediscovering my passion for these things that uh, that I had uh, just written off as, you know, fire hazard that I would never read again or just dismissed as just being part of my past, you know, and uh, that's part, that's kind of funny because, you know, it's, I'm traveling today, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm literally going home and uh, I can't get nostalgic for that, you know, there's some sort of a disconnect where... The nostalgia just isn't there. It's not like it's not like a homecoming. It, maybe it's just that I'm just so far removed, or so much that you know, so much about what made that place home isn't there anymore. You know, so it, it's weird. And then you know, to look at uh, on a completely different level, uh, 
rediscovering stuff from the past here, reading these old X-Men comics for the first time in a very long time, has been something of a homecoming. It's it's weird. I was uh, talking to a good friend of mine, Dave, uh, from the Selling Out show a couple days ago, and we were talking about... Uh, you know, he, he rediscovered some of his comics. Uh, he found a long box of his and was digging through them. And he talked about how uh, reading some of these books from the 90s, uh, he said it was raining out and he was like huddled up and he was reading these comics and it made him feel like he was a kid again. And and, and I, ref- I, you know, I reflected back and uh, I talked about the episode that uh, we did on the X-Trader last week and how I had you know, piles of X-Men comics on my floor and magazines. And I was like laying on the floor surrounded in these comics. Like I was, like I was a kid again. And it was just such a weird feeling and, uh, but such a warm feeling. And, and, you know, I, I could get, you know, precious by half here and talk about, you know, the abstraction of home, you know, what is home? Is it a place? Is it a feeling? Is it a whatever? But it's just such a weird dichotomy where, Today, I'm literally going home, and I feel nothing. But last week, laying on, a, on the floor in my, in my little office here, digging through comics, I felt like I was home. And I've only lived in this house for a couple years, you know? It's, so it's just that weird dissonance, you know? And, uh, you know, I apologize if I'm getting a little, a little too cute by half here. But uh, it's, a, it's just a weird kind of feeling, and, it, and it's what's making me want to continue doing these shows and uh it's really just reignited my passion for the medium for the industry for the art form you know uh just for the language of comics uh i shared this story on the latest chris's on infinite earths but just in case you only listen to remarvel i'll share it again here um last week i discussed x-men volume two number eight and during that uh i it kind of facilitated a discussion on my earliest days in X-Fandom, you know. Uh, the book that we discussed was my first White Whale. It was uh, the first hole in my collection that I couldn't quite track down, and it took me a long time to find it. But during that discussion, I had mentioned that my first X-Men comic that I bought with an eye toward collecting, you know, right off the racks or right off the shelves, was X-Men Volume 2, number 13. And I had, the next day, I had heard from a good friend of mine, uh, Jody, and he said, uh, you're never going to believe this, but that was my first issue, too. And, you know, that just it just feeds into this feeling that uh, it's making me want to do this show more. <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's hard to really put into words. But, um, you know, and, I, and I, I said this already this week, so if you heard this story twice, I apologize. But I, I, I immediately thought of, like, just us, you know, two little dudes going to these various comic shops and pulling the same book off the rack, maybe the same day, and just how that affected our trajectory toward uh, through this fandom, uh, even till today. It's just such a weird, you know, seminal moment that on a level I've shared with someone that I didn't know back then, but I know now. It's, um, I don't know, maybe I'm, I, I feel like I'm just babbling at this point, but uh, I, I hope... What I'm saying is, uh, a <laughs> makes sense, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, I didn't want to miss a week is what I'm trying to say here. I've taken 10 minutes to do so, but I, I didn't want to miss a week. And especially because we're going to be talking about an issue, another X-Men issue, X-Men Volume 2 issue, as a matter of fact, that is a decent bookend to the issue we discussed last week. Because 
that one was my entry into the uh, into the fandom, the X fandom. The issue we're going to discuss today was my exit, my first exit from the X fandom, which I, I do want to make it clear here. It has absolutely nothing to do with the story uh, of X Men Volume Two, Number Forty Five, because it's a great story. It's more about what was surrounding this book's release. Uh, and I've told this story in bits and pieces a time or two before, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you where to find it if you're interested in hearing it. Um, but if you are interested in hearing it, I've got good news, because I'm going to tell you right now. And if you don't want to hear it, uh, well, I guess there's always the stop button. But I, I do want to caution you that I, I hear that it's uh, made out of lava, so you, you probably don't want to push it. So this issue... X-Men 45 came out in 1995, and uh, at this point, um, my personal life, my family life had changed a bit. My uh, my folks had gotten divorced at this point, uh, or by this point, and this, this really is not a, you know, divorced, broken family story, but it does kind of feed into the reasons I had to walk away from comics uh, in a, a circular sort of a way. Uh, we were always, you know, fairly conservative uh, financially. You know, we I, I didn't get an allowance. Uh, yeah, I, everything that I bought was, like, with repurposed lunch money, <laughs> more or less. So it's not like I went home every day and it's like, hey, give me $5, and, uh, and then I would go out and buy comics. Uh, so it was always a, a budgetary balancing act when it came to my ability to buy comics. Or I would do odd jobs. You know, I talked about... Uh, you know, I was a paper boy for a while. I also did the flyer business <laughs> around the time of the death of Superman, where me and my buddy were working for a TCBY as uh, flyer hander outers and uh, to try to get the to pull together the extra scratch. But uh, at this point, I was 15 years old, so like just a little bit before people like McDonald's or Wall Bombs would look at me and be like, "Yeah, we can give you a gig." You know, you had to be like 16 to get those jobs. So. Or at least that's what <laughs> that's what they told us, um, and and also I my birthday is December twenty seventh, so I was like the youngest kid in my grade. Um, so everybody that I knew, they were already a year ahead of me. Uh, they were all sixteen when I was fifteen, so a lot of them were working, and you know I tested the waters trying to like get in <laughs> on their word, but none, nobody really wanted to deal with someone who was under sixteen at that point. So couldn't find money that way. And uh, a thing happened at my school. Uh, we had uh, this big contract negotiation with all of our teachers. Uh, I guess they couldn't... Uh, the story is kind of cloudy in my head, but uh, there was some sort of a situation where the district wasn't offering them contracts or wasn't offering them the kind of contracts that they were interested in signing, I guess. So every day, our teachers would all wear black and they would wear these yellow buttons on their shirt that said... Something I don't remember what I'm just picturing it in my head. It's just it's like I'm looking through a through a bottle or something here. But uh, every morning before class, they would all stand outside the school and uh, protest. They would uh, stand there and just uh, they would just stand in a line. It was like no signs or chants or anything. They would just stand there. It was a silent protest, I guess. And they wanted, uh, you know, parents who were dropping the kids off at the school to see them. They wanted, uh, I guess they wanted all of us on the bus to see them. But they would uh, they would do this. They would stand outside. And uh, when school started, they would go to work. So it was not like they, they weren't like on strike or anything. They were just letting it know, be known that there's a problem. And uh, I don't know how well it worked out for them. I know 
uh, I know one of our local papers actually ran a piece that divulged some of their salaries, which didn't really endear the teachers to the community because these teachers were making a lot of money. They were making like six figures, uh, and this was back in 1995, 1996. So they were making a lot of damn money, and, uh, you know, people weren't very happy seeing these folks, uh, you know, pick it, you know, or, or try to demonstrate. So why the hell am I telling you this story? Well, this, like, affected a lot of the aspects of the school, and one of those was that they stopped the school lunch program. So there was no more school lunches, and so I no longer got lunch money. So I could not not spend my lunch money to bring home with me and go get comics. So it was going to be harder and harder for me to... uh, to do my all-or-nothing sort of a deal with the X-Men. I wanted all four of my main books, you know, X-Men, X-Factor, Uncanny X-Men, X-Force. But more happened inside the comics around this time. Uh, There was a bit of an explosion in the X-Men family, and uh, those, you know, those very expensive books like Wolverine and Excalibur, they were suddenly taking part in the crossovers. So I, you know, I considered them part of the main line, so I had to get those two. Uh, they launched uh, Cable. Cable got his own series. They launched Generation X. Uh, we went into the Age of Apocalypse, and when we came out, we had another X book. We had X-Men. Oh, I mean, we, we had X-Men Unlimited, which was overpriced as hell, and mostly garbage. But as a completionist, I needed it, you know? And it was a... It became a real... Balancing act trying to just stay up to date with the X-Men books where before I could get my four main books for five dollars a month They were a buck and a quarter each my comic shop didn't charge tax to kids So it's a you could put a dollar and a quarter on it on the counter and you'll get your issue of X-Men You know, you didn't need to worry about the Eight percent or whatever the hell it was So I went from having to spend you know five dollars for a month's worth of comics to just this massive explosion of comics. And the prices went up because there was the X-Men Deluxe brand. So these were all $2 each at this point. And uh, there were miniseries. I mean, there was a Gambit miniseries, a Deadpool miniseries, uh, Gambit and Wolverine miniseries, Cable started as a miniseries, Bishop, Storm, uh, the Cyclops and Jean Grey honeymoon thing. It was just so much. And... Uh, and I managed to keep up through, you know, uh, weird ingenuity and doing odd jobs. And uh, uh, post-divorce, uh, we moved into an apartment. And as, the you know, the only young strapping lad in our little area, if anybody had anything they needed moved, they would come get me. Or if they needed something, you know, something rearranged in their house, they came and got me. I guess it was a lot of divorcees in this little, little alcove of apartments here. But, uh... So I was able to make a little bit of scratch that way, but it was just a, a real, like, it was really stressing me out, you know? It was as though I had bills to pay, and I didn't. These were comic books. This was discretionary, hobby, fun, uh, allegedly fun uh, sort of stuff here. It wasn't like I had to do it. It wasn't a monthly bill. It wasn't like if I didn't buy it, the lights were going to go out, or, or the, the, the TV was going to go off, It was, or the phone was going to go off. It was just a hobby. But I had treated it like something more, and uh, I had obsessed. And it, you know, it's just part of my nature, I suppose. But but this hobby was rapidly becoming sort of an obligation, which 
uh, that's kind of where I'm at now, too, when I think about it. And uh, it's really no fun. It's no way to be. You shouldn't buy things out of an obligation to uh, to anybody, uh, including yourself. Uh, because it got to the point where I was just not enjoying what I was supposed to be enjoying about these comics. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't like I was chomping at the bit to find out what would happen in the next issue. It was just, I gotta get the next issue because it's the next issue. And then when that, when that you know, horizon broadened to outside of the main four books I was getting to the entire family of books that I now told myself I had to keep up with, it was just uh, way, way, way too much to where... You know, I was, it's like when you're a kid, you, you find money in the weirdest places, you know, you might find a dollar in the gutter, or you'll find a nickel and a dime in the couch, and you're just collecting everything in order to put them toward whatever, you know, whatever you're, the object of your affection or obsession is. And uh, for me, it was just these X-Men comics. It was just a constant struggle. And, and it, I, you know, I, I appreciate, I can appreciate how stupid this all sounds, but when you're a kid... It's, uh, it, it can kind of become your whole world, I suppose. And this anxiety about missing out, it kind of started with the, uh, the Fatal Attraction storyline uh, in 1993. I had gotten my $5. You know, I, was, <laughs> I had had my $5 to buy my four issues. You know, and I wasn't, I wasn't really buying previews at the time, so I really didn't know what was going on. I knew that I expected books like X-Men Volume 2 and X-Force to be overpriced because they were 25th issues for this Fatal Attraction storyline. They were issue 25 of both, and uh, Wolverine was uh, number 75. So I figured, okay, there's going to be three books that I'm going to have to cough up some extra money for. And actually, I don't even think I was getting Wolverine at that point, so I might have just misspoke. I think I was still... I still focused on those four books, and if I had anything left over, I would, you know, I would expand out. But uh, I got there to pick up the first part of that, which was X Factor number ninety-two, and it was an overpriced book. It was a like a four-dollar book, had the hologram on the cover, and I was like, that was my whole wad of cash, was this one book, and it just made me it made me realize that I was falling behind. Even though these books hadn't come out yet, the subsequent issues, the subsequent chapters hadn't come out yet. I was only expecting to pay a dollar fifty, dollar twenty-five for this book, and instead I'm paying you know three ninety-five, which was everything I had put aside for it, or everything I'd put aside for the month basically. So it was uh that's where things started to get kind of wonky for me, and uh, where the anxiety started to build. Which again, this is. I, I can appreciate how silly this all sounds as a, as a grown person talking about this stuff, but I kind of hope and don't hope people can relate to this because it, it's, a, it's a dumb story. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I was really, really anxious and uh, nervous that I was going to fall behind and had to become even more creative to uh, ways to get money. Uh, walking home from the bus one day, a dude in a van pulls up next to me, and I promise this story isn't going to be gross, but... Uh, He's like, hey, you looking for a job? And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, you're looking for a job. And I'm like, what do you want? He said that he worked for uh, the Muscular Dystrophy Foundation, uh, selling coupon books door to door. And it was a $5 coupon book with, you know, like $50 worth of savings or whatever ridiculous thing it was. But for every book I'd sell, I'd get a dollar. And I'm like, okay, I, I guess I can do that, <laughs> you know? And so for a number of weeks, 
I went door to door uh, selling these coupon booklets that nobody needed. Uh, and I, I remember having a hard time doing it. And the guy's like, tell them it's tax deductible. I'm like, it's $5. <laughs> Who's going to deduct $5 from their taxes? I mean, it's not even worth the time to do it. But uh, I'd be lying if I said I didn't tell people, hey, it's a tax deductible thing. But uh, I did that for a number of weeks and uh, managed to cobble together some more money. And, and every cent of it went back into comics. So it wasn't even like I was having, it wasn't even like it was getting me spending money. It, all it was doing was feeding my addiction and letting me, you know, quote, pay my bills, you know. And I really just wasn't enjoying any of it. It just felt like I was working way too hard and fretting way too much for minimal return. I, I had made it something that I didn't love anymore. And, uh, you know, that's when you're supposed to walk away. You know, when you're not happy, you should walk away. And uh, I didn't. I kept going. I kept going. Made it through the Phalanx Covenant and all of those overpriced books. The Age of Apocalypse with the bookends that were overpriced. Uh, Friggin' X-Men Unlimited still (laughs) buying that garbage. Um, And then, you know, we had... uh, But then my breaking point finally came. And it's with the issue we're going to discuss in just a little bit. Uh, This issue of uh, X-Men Volume 2, it was number 45, it came out the same month or within the same time uh, frame as Uncanny X-Men number 325. Now, 325 is one of those you know, multiples of 25, so it's going to be a big book. It's one of those things that you just knew as a, uh, as a 90s comics fan that anything with a 25 or 50 or 75 or 100 is going to be oversized, overpriced, and gimmicked up. So Uncanny 325 comes out, I grab it, because... Okay, I expected it. I was ready for it. And I figured, okay, well, I probably have a few months because X-Men and X-Force will reach their 50th issue in like four or five months. So I I won't have to worry about anything until then. But I come to the shop and X-Men Volume 2 number 45 is on the shelf. And damned if it isn't oversized and gimmicked and it's labeled as an anniversary issue because it's like the it was like the 20th anniversary of Giant Size X-Men number one. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Why? Why? <laughs> Why are we celebrating this just random, this random sort of anniversary? And that's when it came, uh, it hit me like a bolt of lightning only a few years too late that, uh, you know, these comics companies might not care about us so much. <laughs> it's all about squeezing every last penny out of us. And I was just disgusted. This just, I, I, I soured immediately. I was just like, why, why is this overpriced? I said, it's, in, it's a number 45. Uh, I was trained to think that only, you know, 25, 50, 75, and 100 were the big books. And here we have issue 45, which tells me in five months, there's going to be another big book, another overpriced book when X-Men reaches number 50. And then I look and I see that every X-Men family book that month was oversized to tie into the 20th anniversary of Giant Size X-Men. And that's when it was just like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I I just I put it back on the shelf. Not that I could afford it anyway. And uh, that was it. I was through. And uh, my friend bought it. And, I, and I'm pretty sure I rattled his cage to find out what exactly what happened in it because I still loved the teams and I still was interested in what was going on, but... I couldn't justify it. I felt like a, you know, I felt like a sucker 
for you know falling for it, falling for the con for so long. And I you know walked out, and the the guy behind the counter is like, "Ah, hey, you'll be back." And I'm like, "No, no, I think I'm done." He's like, "No, no, you always come back." And uh, <laughs> damned if he wasn't right. But I, I walked away for a good time. I walked away for over a year after this because I was just I just couldn't justify it anymore. And it's funny because like I think two or three weeks after that, I I wound up finding a job. Um, my mother worked as a medical biller, and uh, they needed someone to file. And I was like, I'll file, you know, it was $5 an hour, maybe like three or four hours a week. So, I mean, I was actually making money. I could have bought all of these comics, but, and I, and I considered it, you know, because it's funny because we look at those, uh, like second prints and newsstand editions, uh, back in the day, we looked at those as being less than where now they feel like they're worth almost more because they were not as plentiful as the direct market, uh, editions, I was at a CVS or a Genovese or some drugstore uh, a couple weeks later, and I found this issue of X-Men, X-Men Volume 2, Number 45, with, uh, without the, uh, the sparkle, you know, without the, the newsstand edition. And it was, it was cheaper, you know, it was a little bit cheaper, and I, I picked it up, and I'm like, oh, you know, I could get this, and uh, I didn't. I put it back, and I was like, you know, I, I, it was cold turkey, and I was at peace with that. And I thought it was just like, okay, this, my comics time is over with. I'm not going to do this anymore. And it's funny because when we moved out to Arizona uh, in 1997, I, I almost left the comics behind, which is weird to even consider. I had them in a, uh, uh, I was a Boy Scout, which I'm sure is not a surprise. But uh, I had a footlocker for when we'd go on long campouts. I would have a footlocker. We, all, we were all, you know, suggested to have these footlockers for long you know, extended vacations, extended uh, camping trips. So I had all my comics in this Foot Locker. I probably had maybe two long boxes worth of comics, and uh, and even looking at them now, I still have like where the backing board has a little dent in the top of it from where the from where the Foot Locker lid dug into it. Still have those right now, and uh, I was just gonna leave them. I was going to leave them with my, with my father. It's like, hey, you just hold on to these for me. If I ever want them, I'll let you know. But I, I wasn't expecting to. Uh, but I, they wound up on the truck, <laughs> and uh, you know, the rest is history. Uh, you know, I tell this story because it's just, uh, it's just a weird little, uh, little part of my you know, fandom. It's a weird little milestone. And uh, I, I want to hear from you guys. Uh, I'm, you know, the, it's like with comic fans, it's like a tale as old as time. When did you walk away and when did you come back? It's, it's right up there with what was your first comic? Because so many of us did walk away for a variety of reasons. Either you know, coming of age, not being able to afford it, losing interest, whatever the hell it was. I, you know, I want to know what you guys, uh, when you guys walked away and what made you come back. Uh, I. I th- Figure I'll probably tell a story about when I came back somewhere down the line because that's uh, just another milestone in the uh, in the uh, the fandom. So uh, we'll get to that eventually. But I, I do want to know when you guys walked away, when you guys came back, uh, if there was like this moment of profundity like I had, or maybe you just missed a week and never went back. You know, it's just uh, I, I, those stories really interest me because I feel like they're just so relatable uh, on so many different levels and. Uh, it might even, like, trigger memories we didn't realize we had. I just love that kind of stuff, and that's some of my very favorite stuff to talk about when it comes to, you know, comics collecting, comics fandom, comics fanaticism, stuff like that. So 
definitely hit me up uh, anywhere you can get me. I'll go through all the ways you can contact me at the end of the episode. But for now, um, I figure it's probably right about time to talk about that issue of X-Men Volume 2 that uh, turned me off and made me run screaming from uh, the X-Men and comics overall. And uh, that one is X-Men Volume 2, number 45. Had a cover date of October 1995. Story is called The Enemy of My Enemy. It was written by Fabian Nicieza with pencils by Andy Kubert, or Kubert, one of those. Inks, Cam Smith, colors by Kevin Summers, and Malibu, Malibu's Hughes. That's hard to say. Letters by Richard Stockings and Comic Craft, edits by Bob Harris. Cover price, and the very reason I left this one on the shelf the first time around, $3.95. It's at this point that I would make a pithy remark about imagine ever paying $3.95 for a comic. But I, I won't do that, so don't worry. Now, the issue opens with Rogue absolutely flipping out on Iceman. They've been on a kind of a road trip ever since she put Gambit into a coma in the moments before the Age of Apocalypse kicked off. Uh, he has since woken up, but she doesn't know that yet because they've been away. Now, Iceman's pretty conflicted, and he blames himself for, he blames himself for Rogue's outburst. And he kind of has a crush on her, so, uh, yeah, this is before the Bendis retcon of a few years ago. Uh, Bobby ices up and tries to defend himself, but it's no use. She smashes through an ice construct and just soars right into the sky. She finally calms down long enough to express fear that she is, quote, too late. Bobby's like, too late for what? And she says, everything. You see, when she put Gambit into a coma, she kissed him. She kissed him because, you know, skin-to-skin contact, all that noise. And in doing so, she managed to noink some memories out of his head. She can't quite put them together, but she knows there's something sinister there. And uh, this is uh, this is still back when we didn't know much about Gambit. So we didn't know about the mutant massacre involvement. We didn't know a whole heck of a lot. Uh, there were plenty of hints out there, but nothing was confirmed yet. Uh, now, Rogue says plainly that she has to confront those memories, try to put them together, put those secrets together, otherwise she fears she'll be running for the rest of her life. We flash over to Gambit, who's in Seattle, and it's raining because it's Seattle. He's there because he knows that Rogue will eventually be headed there because he has an idea of what kind of memories she got out of his head. And uh, he's not keen on her learning the complete truth yet. We jump back to Rogue, and she's at a bar by the University of Washington. And she's wearing very little clothes, which, uh, you know, like we discussed last episode with uh, X-Men number 8, this isn't an ideal situation when her powers are based on skin-to-skin contact. It's just uh, asking for trouble. Uh, She also asks for a beer, and damn damn near every patron in the place is happy to oblige. Uh, She is so out to lunch over her current state that she even goes to pinch one of them on the cheek. Luckily, Bobby's there to stop her, because, of course, skin to skin, it's her curse, can't touch. Um, The drunken college kids don't seem to appreciate him stepping in, and uh, this leads to Rogue losing it again, and she starts smashing the place to pieces. All the while, she rants about her curse of a mutant power. For a moment, though, uh, sanity comes in. She looks like she's about to settle down. And so, like on cue, Bobby presses her about what she learned when she kissed Gambit, so... She gets set off again. She flies through the roof, which tips off all the bar patrons that these two are nothing more than stinking muties. As if her, like, literally destroying the bar with her fist wasn't enough to, uh, you know, maybe make a couple of eyebrows raise. 
Uh, lucky for Bobby, uh, who was left by his lonesome to deal with this uh, dog pile here, uh, Gambit burst through the wall, because the X-Men don't ever use doors or windows. They just burst. Um, as Bobby and Gambit leave, uh, Bobby asks Gambit if he has any idea what Rogue might have learned. And he's like, yep, I have a lot of ideas. When uh, Bobby presses to see if he wants to share, and he says, nope. So uh, we still don't know exactly what Rogue learned, or even what uh, Gambit thinks Rogue might have learned. We shift scenes over to Manhattan, where the anti-mutant muckety-muck Graydon Creed is sold on the idea of running for president of the United States in the 1996 cycle. We come back to Seattle, and we rejoin Rogue, who is sitting in a dilapidated theater. She is soon joined by Gambit and Iceman, and uh, Bobby is pretty surprised that Gambit knew exactly where to go. But really, I mean, should he be? I mean, Gambit found them. He, he showed up in Seattle, of all places. I mean, finding a theater is... I mean, it should be academic at this point. Now, Rogue is shocked to find that Gambit is still among the living. And they talk a little bit about secrets, about trust, about love. And Rogue says she ain't sure she can love him if she can't trust him. To which Gambit says he ain't sure if he can love her if he can't touch her. Which I, I don't think is exactly the same thing. You know, I think one might trump the other, I don't know. Uh, Rogue snaps again and tells Gambit that she can feel his heart pounding, and it seems to her like he's realized that he's finally gotten caught. She, lank- she yanks the curtain rigging down on top of Gambit. Uh, he tries to reason with her, but she ain't having it, and she flies through yet another roof. Bobby gives chase, and uh, when he catches up to her, she insists that he's only sticking his nose into this matter because of a recent altercation he had with Emma Frost getting it to his head. And, uh, you know, give Bobby credit. He doesn't deny it. The, this is Emma comes, uh, Emma pops out of her coma, you know, around the Generation X time or Generation Next time, right before that, and manages to take over Bobby's body and use his powers better than he ever could before. So, really shows that, uh, maybe he isn't living up to his potential and, uh, and he also has those daddy issues. His father's kind of a jerk. You know, it's a, a, lot of, a lot of stuff going on with Bobby. But this gives a little bit of a distraction, and uh, during which Gambit is able to hit Rogue with a charged-up section of rope. Now, this knocks her out of the sky and sends her back into the theater. At this point, Gambit's had enough. Enough of seeing Rogue in such a state. Enough of the lies. And it looks, for a second, as though he's going to reveal exactly what went down in this theater back in the long ago. But he doesn't. Um, He says that it's all been buried, and uh, that doesn't help anybody. Rogue talks about their near-fatal kiss. Uh, You know, this is right before the Age of Apocalypse, when the Emkron crystal wave was doing its thing, uh, and they thought the world was going to end, because it, you know, kind of did. And she mentions that she'd never kissed anyone since killing that kid Cody, and so she couldn't help herself when it came to uh, the potential of kissing Gambit before the entire world perishes. And it feels, it's weird here, because it it kind of feels like she's blaming herself, you know, like, I wouldn't have found out your secrets, or I wouldn't have found out that you have a secret if I didn't kiss you. So kind of blaming herself, which seems a bit unfair to me. Uh, I think, I mean, the world was going to (laughs) end, you know, I think the rules are a little bit different then. So Rogue could uh, maybe be a little bit easier on herself. Uh, And I mean, it's, Gambit was always into it. Gambit's always tempting her to touch him or kiss him, saying that it, you know the, the reward would be worth the risk. So, I mean, it, it's weird for Rogue to blame herself here. Uh, Gambit uses his gloved hand to wipe away Rogue's tears and even tastes one of them. 
in order to illustrate how they can still find ways to touch one another. They embrace, but Gambit pulls away. Then he removes his glove and he holds out his hand. He offers Rogue the opportunity to learn more if she so desires. All she's got to do is touch him again. Naturally, she does not touch him. Rogue tells Iceman that she's leaving the X-Men for a bit, but tells him to go back and, you know, be a, be a big strong boy. She and Gambit tell each other that they love each other, but, uh, you know, that whole thing where sometimes love ain't enough. Rogue flies off again, but this time not through a roof. Or maybe it was through that same hole she had already made in the roof. I don't know. There was no big explosion of lumba, so that's a good thing. Gambit tells Bobby to go home and says, you know, I'll, I'll be back home in a few days. I want to stick around Seattle. He also suggests that Rogue will eventually return to the X-Men, but probably not to him. So they're done for now. We jump ahead to the following night, and while walking down a seedy street, Gambit sees Mr. Sinister in a darkened alley. They exchange pleasantries, uh, you know, a lot of uh, you-can't-change-your-past sort of stuff, and Sinister vanishes, and Gambit kind of loses his stuff. And that is that. I tell you what, I loved this issue. I thought this was a wonderful issue, and uh, when I read it, you know, a couple years after it came out... It was weird. I had like this weird kind of kind of separation there, where I was kicking myself for not reading it back in the day, back when it came out, not picking it up when I had the opportunity the first time around. But at the same time, there was like a feeling of relief because had I picked it up, I probably would have just continued the cycle, you know, because this was such a strong issue that I think I would have stayed collecting comics. I wouldn't have had that little break that I think I needed. I think I needed that break to kind of recharge the uh, the fandom batteries, you know. And if I didn't take that break, I might have burnt out even harder than I did. <laughs> and maybe maybe would have just set fire to the uh, to the Footlocker full of comics at some point. But I uh, oh, this was just a great issue. Uh, Gambit and Rogue were kind of like comfort food for me. I know they've uh, since brought them together. Uh, I think they're married. I think there's like a Mister and Mrs X series that might have been an ongoing, might have been a mini. I don't know. But uh, I know that they have come together. I don't know if they're still together, but they were always kind of a comfort food for me. Uh, we had uh, we had like Scott and Gene were like the put together couple, at least they were back in the day. But Rogue and Gambit were kind of like this, kind of like a nebulous will they won't they sort of thing. It was kind of uh, where Cyclops and Gene felt like grown ups. Gambit and Rogue felt like well, still kind of grown ups, but. Maybe you know more adolescent in their uh, in their relationship and in their romance. Uh, just such a great contrast between the two couples, and uh, it was one of those things that kept me coming back because it was these X Men books that told me that comics didn't need to be punching and and capes, and uh, there could be deep uh, angst, there could be interpersonal conflict, there could be multi layered relationships, you know. Uh, Intersectionality of roles All that kind of hocus pocus <laughs> That we uh, Psych majors will introduce into conversation uh, Whenever we're given the opportunity But just a wonderful issue The art was fantastic um, I remember really liking The dynamic between uh, Rogue and uh, and Bobby uh, Iceman Because it was just uh, Iceman was kind of a background character Around this time It felt as though and and this might be me projecting, but it, it felt as though like he was almost like a kind of a, a self-insert for Scott Lobdell a lot of the time. Uh, just as a guy who would make witty comments about everything and everyone around him, you know, just a, a 
kind of a kind of a heckler in a way. And I thought maybe that might be Lobdell's way of uh, you know just lampshading some of the silliness and some of the uh, some of the drama that was going on in the book. So to see him here. Uh, as more of a serious character, as more of a conflicted character, uh, he had just gone through that event with uh, with Emma, and I thought that this was just a different uh, a different sh- side to the character that I hadn't known yet, as I wasn't there for the Opal Tanaka stuff. I wasn't there for a whole lot of uh, Bobby dealing with his dad. Uh, there were a couple of issues that I read where you know I could see some of that conflict, but yeah, you know, I wasn't a uh, I wasn't a nice man historian at that point. Uh, not that I am now. And not that it matters, because tomorrow we might find out that everything we thought we knew was wrong, because that's what Marvel does. <laughs> so, uh, I, I just love this issue. It was just such a lot of fun. Um, and it's really making me want to revisit more and more of this, which, unfortunately, uh, one of the things I didn't find in my long box was an uh, extra couple hours of the day. So that's, uh, <laughs> it kind of puts a pin in my, uh, my inspiration, but, uh, it's just, I would recommend checking these books out. They're not hard to come by. And uh, they, they feature just some really good characterization. I think the 90s comics get a lot of flack for being, you know, style over substance. And, I mean, this issue here had that ridiculous cover price, had a, a dumb gimmick cover, was tying into something it really didn't need to tie into, with a, or not tie into, but celebrating something it really didn't need to celebrate. I, I mean, this was supposed to be a celebration of Giant Size X-Men, it starred Gambit, Rogue, and Iceman. They, they were not part of the new team. <laughs> you know, they weren't part of the uh, the all-new, all-difference back in 1975. It had nothing to do with anything. It was just a, another, it was just an excuse to, you know, put a gatefold cover, some, throw a couple of sparkles on it, and jack up the price to uh, screw with uh, poor young Chris at the time. One more thing I wanted to mention is the uh, near miss on Rogue... She's given this opportunity to touch Gambit, you know, to learn everything she might want to learn about him, which would include, you. one would imagine, his involvement in the Mutant Massacre, which wouldn't be revealed in the comics until issue 350. But, I mean, she could have learned everything, so it's like this weird near-miss where we had this opportunity to learn more about these characters we'd invested in. But they, they pulled it out. They pulled out the rug, you know, right? When we were about to get there, they, they, they pulled it back. And uh, it reminded me of uh, a date night issue they did with Rogue and Gambit. I, I want to say it was right before Fatal Attraction, so maybe issue 24. Uh, I, I can picture the cover. It's just Gambit and Rogue in, in an embrace. Uh, I think it's got like a kind of like a mauve background. But uh, at the end of that issue, Rogue is about to tell Gambit her real name. Because they were talking about the secrets that they keep and all that stuff and trust. And they were trying to each give a little to get a little, you know. And it ended with Rogue saying, you know, Remy, my real name is. And he, like, tells her, like, shh, doesn't matter. And it was just like I wanted to punch him. <laughs> because I I wanted to know what her real name was. I, you know, coming in as such a big fan of uh, of the trading cards, you know. Whenever, whenever there was a trading card that said real name unrevealed... Oh, man, it, it just became something you really wanted to know. And I'm sure they knew that. So it's just these weird near misses between Rogue and Gambit. Uh, because, you know, at the time, I knew so little about either one of them. Uh, I, you know, creators knew so little about either one of them. And uh, they just knew how to keep us coming back and how to keep, how to give just enough to, to make us feel like we're, we're going to get it. You know, we're going to get the information we want. And then just pulling it away 
And uh, But we still keep coming back because maybe they'll give us another inch next time, you know? Uh, it's just such a great way to do comics. Uh, it feels like it's it's lost. This kind of uh, this kind of storytelling is lost these days because every revel- revelation in comics has to be leaked to whatever rag wants to slum it in comics. USA Today or Entertainment Weekly, whoever wants to slum it in comics, you'll get our big scoop. Rogue's real name is whatever. Where back then it was like this was stuff that was happening in it, happening in the comics. It felt like something that was for us. You know, the ones who were actually. There, reading the comics, buying the comics, following the comics, obsessing over the damn comics. These were little little breadcrumbs for us. And uh, we just don't get that anymore. And, and it kind of sucks. It really, really does. But uh, I think that's probably all I've got to say for now on X-Men Volume 2, number 45. Uh, this one is one of the uh, touchstones in my uh, my fandom. So it might come up again somewhere down the line. Or we might, we might uh, do a call back to it. Uh, before talking about another X-Men book But I had a great time talking about this one Had a great time revisiting it uh, Even just the simple act of uh, Running through the synopsis uh, Because I, I last night I spent, you know, an hour and a half With the book, you know, just going through Picking out bits and pieces that I wanted to discuss And it's It's just all part of this uh, This rediscovery process And it feels like It almost feels like I'm putting myself through some weird Version of therapy and uh, uh, and for better or for worse, I'm, I'm taking you guys along for the ride. <laughs> but if you guys have any particular feelings about Gambit and Rogue or gimmick covers, and of course, like I mentioned earlier, if you want to tell me about when you came and went and went and came and came back and left and you hokey-pokeyed with the comics industry, I, I'd love to hear all about that. Uh, and uh, maybe it'll lead to further discussion down the line. But uh, definitely reach out. Um, you can get me at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or more likely you'll be able to get me on Twitter because uh, that I check more often. That's at Ace Comics at Twitter. You can also visit the show site at chrisandreggie.com. You can check out my uh, personal blog at uh, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com where I discuss different DC stories every single day. Currently still going through Action Comics Weekly. We're almost done with that. Uh, I'm not sure where we're going to go after that. Uh, I don't know if we'll put a pin in it or if we'll uh, segue into something else. Uh, we still got uh, about seven weeks to to chew on that. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to thank you so, so much for hanging out with me today. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you guys listening and reaching out. Uh, it means the world to me. So, so huge, huge thanks. But so long for now, and I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.